Welcome the visitors that we have among us this morning, especially I'd like to note up here Brother Collier, who's a retired minister in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I've learned to really love and appreciate Brother Collier in the short time that I've known him and the few times we've been together. Uh, anybody who loves the Lord, I think, that when you meet somebody who equally loves the Lord and, and is respectful of His way, then you have a special feeling for that person. And that's the way I feel with Brother Collier in just a short time that I've come to know him. You may remember him as coming with uh, Brother Cameron uh, one, one time or several times to the service. Of all the events uh, in, that we could look at in history or any of the subjects we could study, there's no question that if the resurrection of Christ is a historical fact, then it would have to be. Uh, the most astounding, the most amazing event that ever took place. There's no question. There's, not, there's never been anything like it. If it is a true event and it actually happened. If indeed uh, the creator of the universe actually sent his son to this earth and, and stood by and watched him crucified in the way that Jesus was and, and did not step in and intervene and allowed him to suffer all the things that he suffered so that someone else could benefit, then it would have to be uh, the greatest act of love possible beyond anything that we could ever comprehend. It's interesting to me that uh, over the years as I've studied this subject, I don't know how many times I've sat down and poured over the prophecies and the eyewitness accounts and the uh, the latter parts in harmonizing of the four Gospels about the this event, or how many books in the field of Christian evidences I've read on this, more time studying this event and all that was involved in it than anything else I've ever studied in my life. Uh, come to the conclusion a long time ago that everything else in the Bible points uh, to this event, that it is the centerpiece of everything that is revealed in the Bible. And yet despite all of the study and all that's involved in it, there's probably no subject I deal with that I feel more inadequate than this here. And that's, that's all. I've never presented it or dealt with any part of it, and that's all you can do in one short lesson is deal with a part of it. I've never dealt with any part of it in a way that I felt that I did it justice. I always walked off thinking it, it just could have been better. There's, and part of the reason is because of the event itself. I mean, how do you, how do you convey with your intellect, all that was involved in the, the wisdom of figuring out a way that an unjust, unholy, unrighteous people could be made perfectly just and righteous. Now try that on for intellectual endeavors. And that's what happens here. How do you handle this act of love? Uh, were beyond anything that we're willing to do or could ever imagine and that God would actually give him up to this kind of suffering and agony for us and for others who didn't deserve it. Or how do you comprehend Jesus who, although he existed equal with God, counted not that equality a thing to be grasped and he emptied himself and I don't believe we'll ever get a, begin to get a grasp on what happened unless we deal with what was involved in Jesus emptying himself. That he 
gave up everything, not just all the power that he had with God, but he gave up his memory. And in anything that would have made him higher than coming to earth and born as a human being and starting over brand new. Uh, remember when he spoke of the judgment situation and, and, and made the observation that uh, at this point in time, I don't know the day. The Father does. But I know that the angels do. Well, at one time, he existed equal with God. He, he gave up that equality. And, and Luke says he had to grow and develop and, and learning. And just as he grew physically, he had to grow mentally and, and through studying. And so what's involved? And I look at myself, can I imagine just giving up my memory in its totality and all the advantages that I have and going into another society and starting over brand new in that society, but having given up my memory and all my power and all my prestige, whatever that is, in this, and, and he did it voluntarily because he had something to do that could only be done by doing that. You see, Jesus could not suffer in every way that I suffer. He couldn't be tempted in every way that I am tempted. He, he couldn't face death in the way I have to face it. Unless he emptied himself. And so, trying to comprehend that is one thing, and then to articulate it. And I, I know we don't do a good job of it. When I watch some of the events that go on in society and I, I see people getting uh, all revolved and, and hollering and shouting and clapping and applauding and playing multitudes of dollars to see some guy dunk a basketball or throw a fastball and I think about all the services I've set in where in such a slow and lazy way we have meted out praise to the a creator of the universe who accomplished all of this. And I think somewhere we're not getting the message across. I think of how many times I've extended the invitation or have preached through and I've, I've watched teenagers in the back who were, who were maybe joking and cutting up and pinching one another and all. During, and I think, well, something is wrong. We're not communicating. We're obviously not communicating. Nobody can have even an inkling of an understanding of this. How can you cry in a movie that you know is fiction and not weep at the most truthful act of love that ever took place. Amen. So somewhere we're not communicating. When I, when I see the, the apathy within the church as a whole, when, when I see the, the lack of sacrifice and the lack of commitment, and I think, how can we understand this event and all that was involved in it? And, and be anything but zealous and fervent and sacrificial in our desire to serve God. So I know that at least part of the problem is we're, we're just simply not communicating in a good way the message itself. And so here is just another attempt. And to encourage you that there is deficiencies, recognize that there is deficiency in the messenger. All people have strengths and weaknesses when they communicate information. I'm at my best, and I know it, when I'm dealing with facts and assimilating information. I'm at my weakest when I deal with the emotional side of the story. 
Some people have it reversed. The really good ones get it more together. So I encourage you on your own to go back and, and sit down afterwards and to read the last week in the life of Jesus. And read the passages that are important so far as explaining this event. And sit out on a course of study of, of all that's involved in the explanation of the why of this event and what was involved in it and really try to get a grip on it and see what it does to your thinking and your service to God. I'd like you to start with me, not in the Gospels, although that's where we're headed, but in Romans, the third chapter, where we look at the, the need for this event in the first place. In Romans, the third chapter, in verse 9, right in the middle of the verse, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it's written. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I know he quotes from a psalm as, as he looks out at a, at a pagan people without God, but that is people uh, without God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been known, made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where is the boasting or the bragging? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but by that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, the Gentiles too. Since there's only one true God who will justify the circumcised with faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? No, we uphold the law. What have we read? We've read that all of us come short of what God would have us be. If there's any one of us or anybody else that thinks they're pretty good, what they're doing is a little bit of what we've talked in the weeks past. I can think of myself as pretty good if I look at some scoundrel out here that's, that's all shot up on drugs, 
or that's out here breaking in and stealing and fornicating and things of that nature, and I can say, hey, you know, I'm not like that. So like a Pharisee, reminding God he wasn't like this guy standing by him. Most of us can, can find somebody that really doesn't come up to what we are morally. Most of us can find somebody that's just not quite as honest as we are. And so if we want to look around at somebody that happens to not be quite as honest as we are and then think of ourselves as, as honest people, and really that's what we do when we say we're honest and we say we're good and, and we say that uh, all these various things about ourselves, we say in comparison to other people, I'm a little bit higher, but the writer has said we all fall short when we look at God's perfect law, none of us hit it. We all come up short. When we look at that life in Jesus, all of us fall short of that. So the only possible way that I could stand justified before God was in some way other than through my own merits. My own merits just simply come up short. So do we nullify the law when we say that man cannot be saved by the law? No, we establish the law. To recognize the perfection of the law and be honest with myself is to recognize I don't come up to it. So the law makes known to me what sin is and lets me know that I am a sinner. And without that knowledge, I wouldn't understand. But then it leaves me frustrated because at my best, I fall short. Then Paul goes ahead and mentions the fact that God, through this act, works out a way that he can maintain his own justice and still justify us. And that's really an act. A just and holy God has found a way in Christ to not compromise with his own justice and yet justify me. Okay, let's move on over to the fifth chapter of Romans and uh, know a little more information about this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, but we also rejoice in God, who through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul says that and you're on the battlefield, and one of your comrades out there, he's not perfect, you know it. But he's a good old boy, and you like him, and you've become acquainted with him for a few years, and, and they're shooting at him. 
you just might, because you like him, and you're on the same side, you just might risk your life to go after him. And you him out. Somebody might dare. But here lies old Saddam Hussein. And they're shooting at him from every side. And you've got the choice of crawling out there and helping old Saddam out. Well, you'd probably start shooting at him too, wouldn't you? But to get a picture of what God has done, we, we can't really comprehend it until we accept how bad we are. At a time when we were his enemies, not his friend. God, in his foreknowledge, even when he picked David to be king, David didn't surprise God when he sinned. God knew the weakness and the frailty of David. And even though David would commit adultery and have another man murdered to cover it up, God would give up Jesus for him. So while we were in rebellion against God, God loved us and gave Jesus for us. So we, we can't begin to understand it until we first remember and recognize that we are not good people. When we use the term good, we use it in a relative sense. Good in comparison to other human fathers or human mothers or human children or, or human other characteristics. But we have to recognize that we all fall short. And we all deserve to die. And out of the pure 100% goodness of the heart of God, He works out a way to save us from ourselves. You know, you and I know in helping people out, I have to fight myself here all the time. Maybe you don't. I find it easy to help out people who are trying to help themselves out and try to do the right thing. I find it next to impossible sometimes, extremely difficult, to help out people who are always doing the wrong thing for themselves. That is difficult. I mean, it's so much easier to help out somebody that's trying to help themselves, but somebody out here that's just doing all the wrong things. And they don't pay any attention to what you have to say. It is so difficult for them to step in and help out. But God did. While we was doing all the wrong things, Paul said, oh, you Gentiles don't have any excuse. You've got a conscience. Don't, don't kid me. Don't lie to the creator of the universe. You never went out and, and killed anybody or raped anybody or lied or stole or cheated or was selfish and did it in good conscience. You're made in the image of God. And don't give me this nonsense Paul says about not believing in God. There's no excuse for that. You know something doesn't come from nothing. That for every effect there's a cause. Paul said that the invisible God is declared by the things that are. So Paul said no excuse for rejecting God. No excuse for not identifying with his law. We, let's just face up to the fact. Of our own free will, we have sinned. And God, out of the pure goodness of his love extends an offering hand in Jesus 
we don't deserve one bit of it, and we will never sacrifice, we will never do, we'll never be the type of people that God would have us be, as long as we think we deserve something about the sacrifice of Christ. We didn't deserve any of it, and still don't. Turn over to Philippians, the second chapter, a little more insight that Paul gives us into this event. Beginning with verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Now, God, how are you going to turn me into the type of person that will do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit and will consider other people better than myself? That sounds like an impossible task. He said, do a little thinking with me. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very, the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, Paul says, in very nature, God, equal with God, he could have stayed. Emptied himself. Jesus is son of God from our perspective. He was equal with God, part of the Godhead. And he made that choice to become, from our relationship to, to, to the Son of God. And so he humbles himself, comes to this earth, gives up everything, and he lives as a servant. Could have had it all. Lived as a servant. And so Paul says, have this attitude in you that he had. So again, we, we don't begin to grasp what's involved in this event until we realize that when they was beating Jesus and when they spit on him and when they put that crown on his head and they got back and they banged on it and when they made fun of him and when they doubled up their fist and hit him in the face and when they blindfolded him and, and began to beat him and say, to us and tell us who's hitting you. That wasn't any easier for him than it would be for you or for me. In the garden when he lays down prostrate before God the Father and, and sweat begins to pour from his body. Man, I'll tell you when you're tense and under stress and you've all been there before but not with something that bad haven't you been in a situation where you're not doing anything physically, but you are so stressed up that sweat is just pouring from your body? I, I've studied in a room 
sitting down studying in a room of normal temperature and wound up soaking wet with perspiration. I mean literally soaking wet because I was pouring so much of myself into that study and I was so tensed up in wanting to get the most out of this and do a good job. And so here he is though, his is not like I was doing, but I'm saying I know the human body can perspire to sweat drips from you just based on what's going on in your mind. And so thinking about all that's going to happen, Peter is going to curse and deny him. Judas is going to sell him out with a little money. All these 12 that he spent so much time with, every one of them are going to flee, leading by himself. The people that he has providentially cared for, for 1,500 years, going back to the time when Moses gave them the law, are going to turn on him. The people that he came to teach and set an example for are going to turn in hatred towards him. And so he lays out there, prostrates himself, and sweat begins to pour through his body like blood flowing. And says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, not my will but yours be done. And you and I, sometimes we, we think it's the most terrible thing in the world, but we have to undergo some, some unpleasant thing. I just come from seeing my mom. She's got Parkinson's and several other problems, but she's almost 79. She's lived a long life. My grandfather's over 100. He's lived a long life, suffering some now. But even when she dies, she will not do it in the way she's going to die because she deserves to die. She's sinned. And that grandfather is that I am and you are. But man, what it's hard to take is when somebody is punishing you for something you didn't do. And so he, and not only that, he has a choice. I could call 12 legions of angels and deliver me if I want to. So it's like, here you are going through this nonsense. And keep in mind, he's flesh and blood, just like us. There's nothing about his body that causes him not to hurt when somebody spits on him or smacks him in the face or beats him on the head or whips him. Nothing about his body that doesn't hurt just as much. He's never died before. He's given up his equality with God in his memory. Now, death is a first-time experience for him. He's not looking forward to it. And he's being punished for something that he didn't do and people had lied and concocted all these false charges. The other night I was watching, um, I think it's 2020, and in, in in, any of you see the interview with Terry Waite, the uh, man from Britain who spent five years as a hostage in the Middle East? And he was describing his ordeal and four years of solitude and all the various things that happened. Nothing in his life ever could compare with that. When he picked up the blindfold, where they blindfolded him for periods of times, he could hardly restrain the tears. 
It was such an impact on his mind. Some of the parts he didn't even want to talk about. And he's a strong man. He was over there for something he didn't deserve. But what he went through doesn't compare with what Jesus went through. So Jesus went through that. People of their own free will took his life. He took it. He didn't have to. And he took what you and I deserve. And so if you'll just think about it and say, hey, that should have been me. I would have deserved it. That should have been me. And he took my place. And he got exactly what I deserve. And he didn't do it because I'm a great person. He did it even though I was undeserving. And at the time, hadn't even reached the point to appreciate it or understand it or be thankful. So we're in the 23rd chapter of Luke now. They finally got him to Pilate. Herod's had his fun. The religious leaders have had their day. They've got him to Pilate. They ridicule him. They mock him. Verse 11, Herod and his soldiers ridiculed him, mocked him, dressing him in an eloquent robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. Then they take him away to crucify him. He's been beaten so bad he can't even carry the thing they're going to hang him on or kill him on, and so somebody else has to be, has to be called in to carry it the rest of the way. In verse 33, they came to the place called the Skull, Golgotha. Where they, by the way, Golgotha is simply the Aramaic word for the skull. Uh, whether it's called the skull because that is the appearance it has from as you look at it physically or because that was a place where a number of people had been executed and there were a lot of skulls, uh, scholars debate. They really don't know for sure. He's there with two other men. Both of them are criminals who've also been let out to be executed. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers sneered at him. And they said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers came up and mocked him. And they offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other criminal rebuked him and said, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. When you and I die, we're getting exactly what we deserve. But this man's done nothing. Nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him and said, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is a Persian word that had reference to it. It means garden. And over a period of time, uh, the word garden or paradise came to be used in a figurative sense of the, as the abode with God. And so he let him know that he was going to have eternal life. And we began to see something of the story right here. Here is a guy dying 
and says, I deserve to be here, he looks over and acknowledges in his mind some truths about Jesus. I repenting heart, I deserve to be here. Remember when you come into your kingdom, faith in Jesus, and I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. What did that guy earn? He earned just as much as I'm ever going to earn. Just as much as I'm ever going to earn. God forgive us over the years for pushing this simple story out and allowing anybody to conjure up any physical act that you and I would perform, whether it's baptism or the Lord's Supper or the keeping of a day or a doing of something right or whatever it is, and think that because I've done this, I'm going to be saved. Nonsense. Nonsense. I'll partake of the Lord's Supper, but with enough knowledge to know that I'm not saved because I do that. I'm partaking of it because He did it. I'm going to be immersed in water, but with enough knowledge to know that I'm not saved because I obey that simple act. I'm saved because He died voluntarily on my behalf. Amen. God raised Him from the dead. And when I go under that water, I'm not going to think about, hey, you're doing something great, Paul Cook. I'm going to think about his death and burial and resurrection and arise to walk in newness of life, knowing there's nothing in washing of my body with water that takes away a single solitary sin of mine. It can only picture that great spiritual truth. I don't deserve any of it, and neither do you, any more than that thief did. It's about the sixth hour. Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sun stopped shining and a curtain of the temple was torn in two and Jesus called with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his life. You know, Jesus didn't have to die right there. The other two thieves did. He didn't fight it. From everything I've read on the crucifixion that... Uh, the reason they broke their legs is they, they could take their legs and push themselves up and get, get a breath of air. And then when they let themselves down, they would begin to suffocate. And they'd push themselves up and get a breath of air. And people would watch them do this sometimes for days. Sometimes that's why they were so surprised that Jesus was dead. They'd do this sometimes for days. And then when they got tired of it, they would have busted their legs. And after they broke their legs, they, didn't have, they couldn't push themselves up and so they suffocated and died. They didn't have to do that to Jesus. All the scriptures have been fulfilled. The sacrifice has been offered. They're casting lots for his garments, just like David said they would when he looked a thousand years into the future and saw the event. He's been crucified with the thieves, just as Isaiah said the suffering servant would be. His own people have turned against him, just as the prophets had said. Joseph Arminia, the rich man who has become a believer and with his tomb near, is waiting to take him, just like Isaiah.
said he would. The promise made to Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed through your seed is now being fulfilled. And so the Messiah doesn't fight it. He says, Father, receive my spirit. And he lets it go. Don't compare Jesus to somebody in the hospital who's scared to give up that last breath and is spending thousands and thousands of dollars to keep air pumped into that old dead physical body. He gave up the spirit. And he died for me and he died for you. And then as Larry read, beginning the lesson this morning in Matthew's account, they went home after this event and they rested on the Sabbath day. They didn't finish preparing the body because they kept the Sabbath. And then they came back very early as it began to dawn on the first day of the week with the idea that we can now go and we can finish preparing this body for its burial. And they got there and history hasn't been the same since. That great stone was rolled away. A bunch of scared soldiers had run off and it was an empty tomb. And a short time after that, these 12 cowardly apostles, 11 of them really, Judas is going to go out and hang himself, something has happened. They're not cowardly anymore. They're not running from the priest, and they're not running from the Levites, and they're not running from the teachers of the law, and they're not running from any crowd. And there's a lot of ladies that are beside themselves. And for the next 40 days, appearances are made and a lot of talk takes place concerning the kingdom that's going to be established. And then beginning with Pentecost, 50 days later, the message was sounded, it was heard around the world in a generation's time. Because all the places of the world where God had scattered the Jew waiting for his Messiah, all these synagogues sitting there waiting for the information. And it began to be proclaimed in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. No event, as Urban Lenton, a member of the United States Supreme Court who wrote the book, A Lawyer Examines the Bible, no event in all of history has ever happened that has been so substantiated by a variety of quality evidences as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If you can believe anything in history, you can believe this. And the story is there, and if that story and the evidence for it and all that's involved cannot change my life and cause me to hate sin and want to sacrifice and present myself as a living sacrifice to God, as Paul said, then I don't know what can. Let's conclude our service for this morning. If you're in the audience as one that is not a Christian, Jesus died for you because he loved you. It was that simple. If you're willing to repent of your sins and put your trust in him, you can have the remission of your sins and the hope of eternal life through him. The Bible asks us, with this understanding, 
to be willing to acknowledge with our mouth Jesus as Lord and then to be immersed into him for the forgiveness of our sins. But immersed into him with your faith not in the water, but with your faith in Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection from the grave and your identification with that act. If you have a desire to become a Christian, a disciple of his, we give you the opportunity as together we stand and sing.